Hello, everyone, and welcome to Always Ready, a production of thechristianmanifesto.org, where we seek to equip others to apply a biblical worldview in all of life. I'm your host, Jared Links, and in this episode today, we're going to be starting what will hopefully be a helpful five-part series discussing different doctrines, which I believe that the church, the modern church, needs to clarify, that we need to be clear on these issues because perhaps we're being either attacked on them, that we're suffering attacks from the world on these points, or we have not been clear on them ourselves. We haven't been theologically asserting these points very well, or it may be something of both at the same time. And so I want to start with the foundational doctrine of Scripture. How should we as believers rightly understand the Word of God and and emphasize the specific point of the sufficiency of Scripture? And so why start there? Well, two reasons. Number one, if we as the church do not understand this particular doctrine— then everything else is going to crumble. Uh, Our doctrine, our theology, our practices for life are based upon the Scripture. And if you do not build off that foundation, you are building off a shaky foundation, a foundation that, that will not stand at the last day, that you have to build upon the Word of God, for it is the infallible and the sufficient revelation uh, from Him. If you cast aside the sufficiency of Scripture, then you're going to be constantly trying to add to the Bible because you don't believe that it contains everything that you need to know to live pleasing before God. If you reject the inspiration of Scripture, then you're going to go around uh, looking for His message everywhere except for where He has actually placed it in the Word. If you reject the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Scripture, then you have no true foundation for doctrine because you've just rejected the foundational source for truth from God. And the second reason to start here is because many, if not frankly most, of your main heresies in the history of the Christian church begin by a rejection of this point by a false understanding of the scripture. Have you ever heard of the Gnostics of the early church? Uh, The Gnostics, as one of their primary beliefs, asserted that only a few, only a few individuals possess truth and can ultimately know truth, and that truth is obtained by some sort of a mystical experience. And so the foundation for truth is then seen as yours or somebody else's mystical experience. That is a rejection of the Scripture. That is a rejection of the sufficiency of the Word of God. And that is why the Gnostics of the early church rejected the doctrine of salvation. They rejected that Christ had a physical body because they were repudiating the only true source of doctrine and theology, the foundational source, the Word of God. And then fast forward to the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation, when the Roman Catholic Church is dominant, and the Reformation is about to dawn onto the scene. And the heretical Roman Catholics, uh, they are denying that justification is by faith alone. And they also deny that Scripture alone is the ultimate authority. They are elevating uh, the Pope, 
is a 40. They are elevating church tradition. It's a 40 as well. And as opposed to that view, a fiery monk by the name of Martin Luther rose up and claimed that his conscience was bound by the word of God alone. The theologian of the Reformation, John Calvin, held the same position as did William Tyndale, as did John Knox, and the other reformers. The attack was on the sufficiency of Scripture. And then, of course, you had the 19th century, whenever you had all of the liberal theologians coming onto the scene, and what a train wreck liberal theology is, rejecting the Word of God, and solely basing your religion in your own opinions, in man's own opinions. And men like Charles Spurgeon, J. Gresham Machen, and many others fought for the inerrancy of the Word of God. They fought for the true doctrine of the Scripture. And now into the 21st century, <laughs> we don't see any attacks upon the sufficiency of Scripture today, do we? <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious. It's not a matter of, uh, are there any attacks? It's which one do you want to choose to start with here, right? Well, I, I, I want to bring up one example here, and it's John MacArthur's stand that him and, and the elders at Grace Community Church and the church as a whole took the heroic stand uh, whenever they defied the unjust mandates of the civil government uh, last year. And they released a document entitled Christ Not Caesar is the Head of the Church. In the opening paragraph of that document, I want to read it to you. It says, Christ is Lord of all. He is the one true head of the church. He is also King of Kings, sovereign over every earthly authority. Grace Community Church has always stood immovably on those biblical principles. As his people, we are subject to his will and commands as revealed in Scripture. Therefore, we cannot and will not acquiesce to a government-imposed moratorium on our weekly congregational worship or other regular corporate gatherings. Compliance would be disobedience to our Lord's clear command. So once again, we're coming back to the foundational point that, that Grace Community Church, they took the stand that they did because they believe that Christ is the head of the church and that he rules through his word. Therefore, the word of God, not Caesar, not Governor Newsom, not any other governmental authority, the word of God sets the standard for the church because that is how Christ governs his church. So we see all of these attacks upon the sufficiency of the Word of God, and I've, of course, just named a few, uh, but all of these attacks over the course of the history of the church. And so that is why, one of the two reasons, I want us to start off this clarified doctrinal series by examining this point. And then, of course, what, what better place to go to than 2 Timothy 3.16 through chapter 4, verse 2. And so I want us to read that passage and then go through some context here in First and Second Timothy, and we'll make some points as we go along here. You'll, you'll notice that what I am doing today is really asking the question, how should we view the Scripture? I'm not tackling why do we believe the Bible. If you want to read on that, I will throw a couple of articles from my blog, thechristianmanifesto.org, where I tackle that issue. I will throw those in the show notes below. But let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 2 here. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
And what I'm going to try to do is, like I said in the past, I, I took a, a congregation through a five-part doctrinal series on this. So I have like 18 pages of notes here uh, today that I'm going to try to condense down into uh, about 30 minutes, Lord willing, here on this podcast episode. And so let's, uh, let's see how successful I am in doing that. But what we see in this passage are really two primary driving themes. And the, and the first is the, f- the sufficiency of the Scripture for all of life and godliness. And the second is the charge of the minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But before we can really appreciate those things, like I said earlier, we need to go back into the context of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy to really understand the situation that the Apostle Paul is writing to his young son in the faith here in this particular passage. And so as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, uh, Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by Faith. And so Timothy is left in Ephesus here whenever Paul is writing First Timothy, which I would say he was also in Ephesus in Second Timothy for a few different uh, reasons. For one thing, we see Onesiphorus mentioned uh, in Second Timothy 1.16, and we likely know that he served in Ephesus because of how Paul ties him to Priscilla and Aquila in chapter 4, verse 19. Okay, so, so Timothy is likely in Ephesus and 2 Timothy as well. Uh, but Paul left Timothy in that church uh, so that he could confront these false teachers that were preaching false doctrine. Now, all of these falsehoods that Timothy needed to be rebuking, he could do so by proclaiming sound doctrine, which is the truth of the word of God. And so Timothy here is not in a scenario where everything is going smoothly. It's not smooth sailing for the young pastor. It is a bumpy place that he is having to deal with all kinds of errors that he is facing here. That is why Paul leaves him in Ephesus to begin with. And it's interesting to note, actually, the purpose for which Paul wrote First Timothy. At chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so Paul wants Timothy to know how to conduct himself, how, how the church is to be ordered according to the commands of Christ, how the worship is to be regulated by the word of God, how he is a minister, is to faithfully shepherd the flock, preach to the flock for the sake of Christ. And I want you to notice that phrase at the end of the verse, verse 15 here, in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, the church is where the truth is found. And that means that the truth, it must be protected. It must be actually defended against those who would seek to oppose it. Uh, which means that we as the church must stand upon the word of God and we must proclaim it, we must herald it, and we must rebuke those who are contradicting sound doctrine so that they also may come to saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. And so now with that foundation here uh, briefly laid from 1 Timothy, let's go over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. 
Is Timothy still having to fight error when he is receiving the second epistle from Paul? Well, this text says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And so, first of all, note that Paul is in prison for the sake of the gospel here, according to this passage. And the two primary themes of 2 Timothy are in this particular verse. Number one, don't be ashamed about the testimony of Christ. And number two, suffer well for the sake of the gospel. And I want to point you here to verses 13 and 14 of this chapter. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so Timothy here is told to follow the pattern of the sound words that Paul had set for him. To follow the example of the, Paul, the Apostle Paul. To follow the teaching of the Apostle Paul that was grounded in the truth of Christ. That was grounded in the word of God. And we see this. This command here to, to Timothy to guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And that's a reference to the fact that Timothy is going to have to put up a fight. Uh, that he has to guard his ministry. That he has to guard the truth of Christ. Uh, that is primarily what the good deposit is indicating here is the truth of Scripture. That he is having to guard biblical doctrine. And so as we get closer to the context of our passage here. I want you to notice chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. And so what is Paul talking about prior to what we read in chapter 3, verse 16, through chapter 4, verse 2? He's talking about those opposing the truth. He is bringing this back up, that Timothy is still going to have to deal with those who are promoting false doctrine. And so it is important that we understand that fact as we walk into the context of this passage. That whenever Paul tells Timothy that the scripture is sufficient, he's doing so to a man who is facing all kinds of errors and heresies, who is facing false doctrine and all kinds of attacks against the church. And not only that, but Paul himself had actually been abandoned at this point. If you go to chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Luke alone is with me. Chapter 4, verse 16, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. And so Paul here knows the urgency of the moment. And that is why he wants Timothy to come to him soon, according to chapter 4, verse 9. Uh, Paul has fought the good fight. Paul has finished the race. And he is about to go and end apart to be with his Lord. And it is in that backdrop that we come to our passage. And really, if you ask me, that, that chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 2 is the pinnacle of the letter is the height of what Paul is wanting Timothy to do in the midst of this difficult situation. And, of course, we find ourselves today in a unique situation, don't we? Uh, that there are many false teachers, uh, that the culture, that the nation is living out the fruits of its 
rejection of God and his ways. And so we need to be locked into what Paul tells Timothy is a right view of Scripture and how he is to handle the word of God in the midst of a perilous scenario. And the very first thing that we see in our text is the inspiration and the sufficiency of the Scripture. At chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so Paul is, of course, preparing to set up the charge that we see in chapter 4 to preach the word, the well-known charge there. And he is closing out the, the final letter that he will pin in the canon of Scripture. And we see here that he is laying down the foundation that every word of Scripture is breathed out, feonustos, breathed out, inspired by God. Whenever we read our Bibles, we're not reading any other book. We're reading the revelation of Almighty God Himself. And notice that last part, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Not just the Gospels, not just the letters in red, not just the New Testament or only Paul's epistles or only the Old Testament. No, every single book, chapter, paragraph, verse, sentence, word, and even letter is inspired by God. The Holy Word of God is inspired by God. It is inerrant. It is infallible. And it is sufficient. And we see that inspiration of Scripture by the phrase breathed out by God. And now let me let me break down these four terms in case maybe you're not familiar with them because it is very important for us to be on the same page here as what we mean by them. Uh, whenever I am talking about the inspiration of Scripture, I'm talking about the fact that God himself is the author of the Bible, that, of course, he used human writers to pin the letters of Scripture, use the Apostle Paul, Peter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We could do, go on and on down uh, the list. And the writers, they either heard uh, what God said, as in the Gospels, whenever they are actually pinning the words of Jesus that they heard, or they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, the, the letters of the Apostle Paul, he's not necessarily writing down what he heard, but he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so all of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the 66 books of the canon, are inspired by the word of God, inspired by God. And so that, that does not take away from the personality of the writers. For example, if you go read Paul and you read Peter, uh, they have different uh, personalities. And if you go look at the Gospels, they have uh, different details that they record. They're not contradictory, but they have different details that they will uh, record in those historical accounts. And, and so God uses every single writer's unique giftings under inspiration of the Bible, which is why it never contradicts itself. That is why it is true, and that is why it is, it is perfect. Uh, which brings me to the next thing. It is that the Bible is inerrant, meaning that it does not contain error. And now many individuals will have uh, issues at this point because we have differences in translations. I'm reading out the English Standard Version, um, maybe if you're following along in your Bible, maybe you're reading out of the King James Version or the New American Standard Bible. Uh, and we also know that there have been instances of scribes erring in the copying of manuscripts in the past, uh, that we have manuscripts that are complete, manuscripts that are incomplete, and so forth. Uh, but that in no way negates the inerrancy of the Scripture. Uh, there have been over 23,000 archaeological digs done to try to show that the Bible is an error, and not one of them have ever been able to do so. 
uh, the Word of God contains no errors. We can be 100% confident in that fact. And once again, I will refer you to those blog articles that I wrote as to why we can, uh, why we should believe the Bible. Like I said, those will be down in the show notes. And not only that, but this comes to the point of infallibility. The Bible is not capable uh, of erring, which is what we mean by that term. You see, I can get 100% on a quiz, right? And that means I was an errant on that quiz. But I have not gotten 100% on every single quiz that I have ever taken in my life, which means that I am very capable of erring. I am not infallible. But the Word of God is not like that. It not only contains no errors, it is not capable of erring because it comes from God himself. And now we come to that last word, that the Bible is sufficient. And we saw the inspiration of the Word of God in the first part of verse 16. And I want you to look at the end of verse 16, all of verse 17, to see the sufficiency of Scripture. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so the word here, it completely trains us. It disciples us. It shows us how we are called to live for the glory of Christ. It rebukes our errors, and it shows us how to live righteously for the glory of God. It equips us to be useful unto his service. In other words, we we don't need tools outside of the word to fulfill the ministry that we have been given by God. In verse 17, it just builds on this thought process. It amplifies it. The verse is that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Uh, That is a clear description of the sufficiency of the Scripture, that the man of God is not going to have to go and to set under worldly teachers and to gain all kinds of worldly wisdom. No, he must run to the Word of God, and he must base his life, he must base his ministry upon the teaching of the Scripture. And a quick quick note about the phrase, the man of God, is that if you actually look at this, the only... The only time that it is used in the New Testament is in reference to Timothy. And it is also used in the Old Testament, uh, such as in Deuteronomy 33.1, uh, whenever Moses is called the man of God. It is used in the Old Testament to reference those who spoke uh, the message of God, who proclaimed his truth, who, an individual who is a herald of divine truth. And so what Paul is telling Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.17 is that the word of God is able to equip those who spend their lives proclaiming the truth of Christ. That there is no need for them to go into secular society and seeking out wisdom there. They must come to the word. Don't get me wrong, I'm all for reading widely, okay? But everything is based upon the scripture, that the scripture is the lens by which we view everything, and we judge its truthfulness or its error. We do that based upon the Word of God because it alone is without error. And so if the Word of God is is able to equip those who spend their lives proclaiming it and preaching its truth, how much more so is it able to equip all of us as Christians? Now, let me apply this here for a second. Whenever we're thinking about the sufficiency of the Scripture— This means that we don't go out into the culture trying to be like the culture. We don't try to take our Christianity 
and insert the popular ideas and opinions of the world into it. No, we want to stand on the word of God and proclaim it to them. We want to engage the false ideas of the culture. As Paul says, to destroy every argument raised against the knowledge of God. Because these are lost sinners on their way to hell, and they need to hear the truth of the gospel that they may be saved. But but what do we see so often today? We see pastors, we see churches running to the ideas of the world, being more concerned about the judgment of the world, the opinions of the world, and basing what they are doing upon that. Why is it? Because they don't believe that the word of God is sufficient. Uh, They may profess a belief in the sufficiency of Scripture, but they are denying it in the application of their ministry. Uh, They believe they have to be like the world to reach the world, and so they run to the opinions of the world and base their lives upon those. Uh, But that is not our goal. That is not what Paul told young Timothy. Uh, That is not what our Lord did as he walked this earth. Uh, We need to understand that the Bible is inerrant, that it is inspired, that it is uh, sufficient, that it is the source of truth, the authoritative word of God. And everything that we as the church do must have a biblical basis. Uh, that that we must regulate our worship according to the Word of God, that, that we as Christians must base our doctrines, that we must root, that we must ground and find our doctrines in the Scripture, uh, that the Scripture is the source of our theological truth. And we see the transition here to the part of the passage where Paul is going to charge a young man uh, to preach the Word of God here. In chapter 1, 4, verses 1 through 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so you'll notice here a couple of quick points that Paul is charging Timothy before God, before Christ, before the one who is going to judge the living and the dead, that Timothy is to fulfill this charge knowing that he will be judged by his Lord for it. And he is to uh, desire, he is to present himself, to undertake this work in such a way so that he can stand before the Lord as a faithful servant on the last day. And Paul also mentions his appearing and his kingdom. And so Timothy was to fulfill this charge knowing the eternal kingdom of Christ, the conquering kingdom of Christ. The Lord will come back, not as the lamb who will die, but as the king as the conquering king claiming his throne and destroying all who oppose him. And this is a privilege to be a joy. It is a joy to be a herald of the gospel. And Paul tells him, preach the word in season and out of season. In other words, at all times. Do it always. Regardless if it is a time of difficulty or a time of ease, preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Uh, Reprove and rebuke indicating standing against error. Uh, exhorting, indicating the positive assertion of doctrinal truth. It takes both of these things that the pastor has to, he has to be ready to refute those things which oppose the true knowledge of God, and he has to also set forth biblical doctrine. And exhorting, as the old Puritans used to say, it means that the minister is to strike a fire with the word and to give light by showing its truth, and also to give heat by setting the congregation ablaze for the glory of Christ through the proclamation of the Scripture. And Timothy was to do all of this with, com- with complete patience and teaching. He's not to be a loose cannon in the pulpit 
or anywhere else in his life. And so as we begin to wrap up here and we consider applications for today, we, regardless of the situations, regardless of the battles ahead, we must do the same. We must stand upon God's word. We must stand unashamedly upon God's word. We must root and be grounded in everything in the word of God. The very first episode of this podcast was talking about a biblical worldview. Well, biblical worldview comes from the sufficient scripture. I know that's obvious, but we have to have this proper view of scripture in place. We have to actually apply it. And we have to apply it in all of our life. It is the foundation for us uh, that we may proclaim the gospel, that we may go out building up the church, being the tools that Christ uses to build his church through the proclamation of the word of God. And the scripture is sufficient for all of these things. And so I pray that this is a good and a strong foundation to be laid for us as we continue forward in this series examining many doctrinal truths. You can find some quotations, resources, and such in the show notes below. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review. That really helps out. Be sure and share it and everything. Also, go to thechristianmanifesto.org where you can find all kinds of resources on theology, politics, apologetics, all that type of good stuff available there for the equipping of the church. Be sure to follow myself, Jared Links, on Twitter and Facebook. We will see you in the next episode. Until then, remember to be always ready to know the scripture. You may be always ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. God bless.